0: Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by NYDIG and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Sunday, July 25th, and that means it's time for Long Reads Sunday. And today we have a bunch of my favorite things. First, we're reading a Nick Carter piece. Always good. Can't miss with that. Second, we get to talk about history. Third, we get to fight a little FUD. All in all, excellent Long Read Sunday. Glad to have you here. The piece is called Why Central Bankers Invoke Free Banking to Attack Stablecoins, and it's a specific response to a paper from a sitting Fed lawyer as well as a professor at Yale who recently wrote a pretty anti-stablecoin paper. So, without any further ado, let's dive into why central bankers invoke free banking to attack stablecoins. If you're going to warn people about stablecoins by citing 19th century history, you should at least include the full record. If you pay attention to central bank gadget prop, you may have noticed an interesting trend. Central bankers are increasingly fond of making references to monetary history. Specifically, the pre-Civil War period in the U.S. That was when the U.S. entered a monetary era known as free banking. As it's characterized today, this was a rollicking time rife with bank failures and monetary instability, in which banknotes traded at a discount to par reflecting the creditworthiness of the bank. As the central bankers tell it, if you were to take a Tennessee banknote to New York, for instance, your money might not have been accepted at par. From the 1830s to the 1860s, the vast majority of banknotes were issued privately, by banks mostly regulated by individual states. Our monetary elite has become fixated on this period recently. In May, Federal Reserve Governor Lael Brainard denounced antebellum banking in a speech exploring the creation of central bank digital currencies. Quote, Indeed, the period in the 19th century when there was active competition among issuers of private paper banknotes in the United States is now notorious for inefficiency, fraud, and instability in the payment system. It led to the need for a uniform form of money backed by the national government. Back in 2018, the president of the St. Louis Fed, James Bullard, also issued his own history-inspired critique of cryptocurrency, saying, quote, Cryptocurrencies are creating drift toward a non-uniform currency in the U.S., a state of affairs that has existed historically but was disliked and eventually replaced. In a hearing on digital currency last month, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren repeated similar talking points, comparing stablecoins to wildcat notes from the 19th century. And just last weekend, Jeffrey Zhang, an attorney at the Federal Reserve, and Gary Gorton, a professor at Yale, published a paper entitled Taming Wildcat Stablecoins, in which they pejoratively compare stablecoins today to the banking context in the 19th century, which they refer to as free banking. The paper concludes that privately issued money, whether free banking or stablecoin-based, cannot work, and that only a sovereign can supply good money. The paper was commended by none other than the high prince of fiat, Paul Krugman, who used it as an opportunity to condemn stablecoins. He tweeted, This, by Gorton and Zhang, is very good. Stablecoins are just a modern version of free banking, in which private banks issued their own notes supposedly banked by specie. That system was crisis-ridden, and the same will be true now. In all of these cases, a tax on free banking, the notion of permitting banks to operate largely outside the confines of state regulation, are rhetorically employed to undermine stablecoins. Stablecoins come in many forms, but primarily exist as tokenized IOUs for commercial bank dollars that circulate on public blockchains, allowing settlement in dollars or other sovereign currency terms. They trade at par because they are convertible for underlying dollars in commercial banks, or sold to someone who is willing to undertake that conversion. Because stablecoins trade on public blockchains and facilitate the global exchange of value across a network of exchanges and wallets, and issuers, for the most part, aren't regulated as banks, these comparisons to laissez-faire banking naturally emerge. So do stablecoins constitute a reprisal of free banking, and if so, is this a problem? On the first question, I would answer in the affirmative. Free banks relied on gold as reserves, whereas stablecoins are mostly issued against commercial bank dollars. Larry White points out other things where there are no analogies in terms of the liabilities between notes issued by free banks and the stablecoins of today, but by and large, the comparisons are quite apt. So much so that we wrote a white paper in summer 2020, pointing out that stablecoins and their issuers, oftentimes exchanges, represent a potential technologically enabled return to a free banking era. As we say in the piece, lessons can be taken from the history of prior banking epics when private entities took responsibility for issuing money effectively outside of state control. So on this point, we very much agree with the comparison between free banks and stablecoins proffered by Brainerd, Zhang, and Gorton. However, their emphasis solely on the US instance of free banking is wrong-headed. As economists George Selgin and Larry White have spent virtually their entire careers pointing out, and we echo in our crypto dollar piece, the American antebellum episode did not constitute genuine laissez-faire banking. Banks during that period were forced to hold risky state government bonds and were restricted from engaging in branching, meaning they couldn't establish branches nationwide. This inhibited them from geographically diversifying their depositor base and from having free choice in their asset portfolio. It's no wonder that bank failures were common. Neither of these particularly U.S.-based restrictions was present in genuine free banking episodes such as Canada. There's also Scotland's successful case study chronicled by the aforementioned Selgin and White alongside Crosner and Dowd. The repeated omission of successful historical instances of free banking, Scotland, Canada, Sweden, and Switzerland, in which bank failures were uncommon, notes were mutually accepted by rival banks and traded at par, appears strategic. For analyses that do consider the fuller historical record, see Selgin & White's comparisons of free banking and contemporary stablecoins. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nidig, the institutional-grade platform for Bitcoin. As long-time listeners know, NYDIG is a major force in the Bitcoin space, and they're now making it possible for thousands of banks who have trusted relationships with hundreds of millions of customers to offer Bitcoin. That mainstream access is critical for all of us, and you can learn more about it at NYDIG.com slash NLW. That's nydig.com forward slash N-L-W. So why are the central bankers so keen to characterize the private issuance of money as inherently unstable? Because they are deeply conflicted. They rely on these myths to sell us their proposed solution in the form of CBDCs. It's no coincidence the anti-stablecoin contingent is generally fond of CBDCs and believes the state should not only control the issuance of money, but also have the power to determine which transactions are valid. We do not have to speculate on this front. If you listen to central bankers, they invariably de emphasize privacy in transactions and mention the necessary imposition of controls, inhibiting activities that the government claims are illicit. This is sometimes euphemized as balancing an individual's right to privacy with the public's interest in enforcement of AML CFT regulations, despite the fact that physical cash has no inbuilt anti money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism controls. I have yet to come across a central banker proposing a CBDC project with the precise and same qualities of privacy and transactional freedom as physical cash. The debate is fundamentally about the state's role in society. CBDC's promise to strip some of the issuing power of money away from the commercial bank sector, which exists as a public-private partnership, and restore it to the central government. This would naturally grant government extremely powerful tools for surveillance, societal control, and would empower central bankers with granular tools to affect the money supply. In a country where the politicization of banking is an established doctrine, CBDCs would represent a colossal victory for those trying to concentrate power in state hands. Thus, the reason historical episodes with private money issuance and administration are so frequently a target is because they stand in the way of attacks on stablecoins. The success of stablecoins and the attendant stagnation of CBDC projects is embarrassing to central bankers and policymakers. Stablecoins offer everything that CBDCs hope to achieve, but in a completely bottom-up, free-market way. If economists can prove that episodes of free and unrestricted banking were failures and led to massive consumer losses, they might prove that, similar, latter-day systems are a bad idea too. Unfortunately for them, not only is their historical account flawed, but so is their present-day assessment of stablecoins. Far from being inherently flawed or unstable, stablecoins are an overwhelming success today. The free market has allocated over $110 billion in deposits to these projects, even though they have only really existed in production for seven years or so. Stablecoins collectively today settle anywhere between 10 and $20 billion on a given day, trading with extremely tight spreads. Gorton and Zhang object that stablecoin recipients will not accept these tokens at par, because the no-question-asked principle is violated due to a lack of confidence in the issuer and no government backing. Quote, without NQA, they insist, the community has no money. Stablecoins that do not satisfy this principle also will not be able to serve as money in transactions. End quote. But their analysis is off base both historically and in the present day. Private banknotes worked just fine in Scotland between 1716 and 1844. Today, stablecoins have been embraced and indeed accepted at par by millions of individuals and firms thanks to the presence of convertibility. Indeed, our venture fund, alongside many of our industry colleagues, today prefers to settle investments in stablecoin format because they operate 24-7, offer strong finality, and do not face the massive headaches involved with sending wires abroad. Startups we invest in increasingly ask for them, and in some cases process payroll in stablecoin format. For globally distributed teams, stablecoins make far more sense than trying to tackle transfers to dozens of different countries via extractive intermediaries in the Byzantine correspondent banking system. On this topic, the free market has already outmatched central banks. Encouragingly, some central bankers like Fed Vice Chair Randall Quarles have understood the merits of stablecoins and have not dismissed them out of hand. Nevertheless, it is clear now that nothing in money or finance is deemed outside the purview of Washington and the New York Fed. The key question is, once they get a hold of them and regulate them, quote, appropriately, how will they do? As for the consumer benefit of private versus public money, one only has to consider what happened after the free banking episode in the U.S. monetary issuance was centralized in the hands of the state, which promptly inflated away everyone's savings during the Civil War. Curiously, the central bankers touting the benefits of public money omit that part of the story. All right, back to NLW now with just a quick set of thoughts. I think that the key thing here that's so important is Nick contextualizing this discussion of stablecoins as a power of state question. I think that that's right. And I think that the other thing that he points out but that we could go even farther on is that the money system we have today is not simply a state system. In fact, it is a huge, complex melange of private and public actors working together. In many ways, like Nick is arguing, I think that privately issued stablecoins pegged to the US dollar are the natural extension of the system we've built so far, rather than some abrogation of it. A CBDC done entirely by the state would inevitably put more hands in the power of the state. It would threaten commercial banks. It would threaten all sorts of different parts of the existing system we have. The good news about that is that there are likely a lot more allies than it seems when it comes to how to resolve this question. And ultimately, there are many in the US who are extremely pragmatic, who will look at China's trials, millions of dollars here, millions of dollars there, compared to $110 billion of USD based stablecoins issued over the last few years. Currently, the private market is kicking the slats out of the central banks when it comes to a new form of digital stable currency and the US would do well to integrate that rather than outlaw it. But if there's ever been an example of me preaching to the choir, it's probably around that. So for now, I will say I hope you enjoyed Nick's excellent walk down history lane. And until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.